chargebacks, fraud, fees, and expired credit cards. Payment can be a real pain for any SaaS business. So today we're joined by Danielle Keevan, who's the VP of Finance at Paddle. And together we'll dig deep into the world of online payments so you don't have to. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Victor. Excited to be here. Yeah, 100%. I've been looking forward to this one for for quite a while. Um, How did you end up becoming VP of Finance at Paddle? What, what, What does that take? What was your path? So my, path was, my path was quite lengthy. I think uh, before <laughs> even jumping into the tech space, I was very much in the hospitality industries with the Marriott's and the Hyatt's. Oh. From there, I switched over to Booking.com, which is also it's tech space, but also still hospitality. And from there, um, being a such large companies and um, kind of corporate structure, I was wondering how much faster or how much of a bigger impact one could have at smaller companies, getting the foundations and principles and right and building the right infrastructure to scale. So that kind of incented my move over to MessageBird, which is also a very dynamic company, um, which has communications as a service um, and is growing tremendously every year as well. And from there, um, I was approached by Paddle And I was curious at how much more of an impact a finance professional can have, not just in a small company, but in a company where finance is actually the product. Um, So (laughs) finally, I find, I I think I found kind of exactly the spot where I wanted to be in tech, not huge yet, uh, growing to scale, building enough foundations and having a very close relationship with our product and engineering team in terms of what we're building, how we're implementing and how we're scaling. It's like they get me here, right? Um. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they don't like to find those people in a dungeon. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That sounds like like a great fit. Then awesome. Well, our main topic of the show today is is obviously payments, especially credit card payments, internationalization, things like that. But generally, and I think you know a lot of people, most people, sort of understand how it works. We're using our credit cards every day, especially online. But how does that actually work? What parties are involved when I enter, you know, I, I go to a SaaS, I put in my credit card number, which most of the time is actually on their page, right? So it doesn't even look like anybody else is involved. But who's in there? Who's in between my bank and, and this form on the SaaS website? I think you have different kind of approaches that you can opt for. One of them is to integrate directly via a gateway provider. The downside is that you will be dependent on them being current with the integration with other payment providers and acquirers, but it is easier to integrate with. So this is kind Mm -hmm. of the more common um, integration that most um, software companies opt for. Um, With direct integrations, you do have way more flexibility. And also you have more layers of service. I think going to direct acquirers also can impact the fees that you're paying, for example, and have different advantages. However, in general, most um, SaaS businesses just want to plug and play. So having an intermediary manager acquirers is usually the way that software companies prefer to operate. So the gateway provider, what do they do uh, as opposed to uh, the intermediary or uh, how do they layer on top of that? 
So acquired versus providers, they do uh, provide an additional layer of service, like local acquiring or in various territories and payments. Um, mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, it does have a impact on pricing. Just a very good example is that you can uh, avoid interchange fees if you're doing going through local acquiring. You also have net network mm-hmm. fees and provider fees, or you have blended fees, a fixed fee for all of them. When you look at doing business in multiple countries and in a larger space, you're also looking at potentially having cross-border transactions, which do result in higher fees versus the local acquiring. So local acquiring may also provide a lot of benefits in terms of pricing for your business. I think a very good example is just looking at what happened in Brexit. So all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, any transactions going cross-border had an interchange fee slapped on top of it, which was significantly higher to what we had seen in the past. Oh, interesting. And where does Visa and MasterCard and American Express and so forth come in in that mix? You can, of course, again, go directly to, to these companies, but you can also go through payment providers. And I think one of the interesting parts of this is how they manage your credit score and credit risk. So Mm -hmm. sometimes, especially in the software industry, work often with um, recurring subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And in managing recurring subscriptions, you face other challenges with credit cards. Um, for, For example, your customer may not recognize the charge when it recurs or it may report it as a fraudulent charge. Um, and so for software companies, it does occur often that they end up on the Visa or the MasterCard, um, we call it like a blacklist, but it's not really a mm-hmm. blacklist, where you are going to be monitored more closely for fraud mm-hmm. and chargebacks and to see what nature of business um, you provide. Are you a legitimate business? And so this exposes you to some risk as well from losing the functionality to Visa and MasterCard as an operating business. For many um, in the software space, this could be like an end, like a risk to your business, especially if you're managing subscriptions. Yeah, definitely. So it's like I could, like the lowest layer I could go to directly is like Visa and MasterCard. And then there's like a payment provider, payment gateway, and then an integrator on, on top of that, which obviously adds more you know, convenience or it's easier to integrate with, I suppose, right? Yes. Um, and then Visa and MasterCard go directly. These are actually the card issuers, right? Also, so my bank, for example, would work with Visa and MasterCard. So I get a card. And that's how the networks work. Okay, that is clear. Uh, Thank you. And so you already touched fraud. And obviously, this is very common. And um, so this has probably two sides. One would be where people try to defraud my business as a SaaS company. And but what you also mentioned is actually, you know, banks or Visa or MasterCard or payment providers thinking I'm shady or they don't want to do business with me. Um, how, how, how does that happen? And how can I protect myself against that? Yeah. In principle, when you write out a gate, you have nothing to worry about. I think you're just starting out, you know, you have a very close relationship with your customers. And as long as your fraud claims stay low, you will never hear from these companies. Mm-hmm. Once there is an increase, and especially if you come on the watch list for either Visa or MasterCard, 
it is very beneficial to have a direct relationship with these companies or your payment providers so that you they know that you are not intentionally a fraudulent company or defrauding your customers and they will work with you as well to get your risk of fraud lowered. There are several ways of doing this, especially on credit cards. You have the option of, for example, switching on 3DS. This mm-hmm. might impact your acceptance rate. So my recommendation would definitely be to look at only at, com- at countries where this is required and not to go happy-go-lucky and just roll it out for the whole world, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Some of the countries have credit cards that don't, do not even use 3DS. And so you would be significantly impacting your payment experience and payment acceptance rate as well if you just switched it on um, out of pure gene or knee, knee-jerk reaction kind of to what is happening, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. The other mm-hmm. thing you can do is definitely there are there's a lot of data that you are accumulating from your customers generally. So you can kind of look at what your customer behaviors are like, and then you can start building your data models to identify the fraudulent behavior versus non-fraud behavior. As long as you have all this data in-house, you can do it in-house. If you need additional help, a lot of the payment providers actually usually also have a risk management I would say application or add-on that you can make use of to protect your business. Mm-hmm. So that's the user side of fraud. What sort of fraud does usually happen? So I presume, uh, I, I presume there's like two types, right? One is where somebody's card is stolen, and then I, I, you know, that person that's paying for the service didn't actually ever want it. Versus, no, that's the actual person, but they just do a chargeback, uh, even though everything is fine. Like, how, how can I protect myself against both those scenarios? Or is that these uh, fraud monitoring tools that you were speaking of? That is definitely to protect yourself against some of the fraud. In terms of chargebacks, I would definitely encourage a fast turnaround in responding to the chargebacks. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, your paying provider will be able to prove that the credit card was present. In a sense of 3DS, it's even easier to prove these charges are legitimate. And often the chargeback that are filed, you have almost a 40 or 50-50 chance. So it's 40-60 or 50-50 chance of winning them. So that is quite critical to have either a person or someone outside of your organization that is managing your chargebacks. Um, mm-hmm. You can protect yourself. So as a business, I definitely encourage businesses to look at what their chargeback ratio is instead of just letting it run as like, oh, I'm not going to bother picking that up right now. Okay, that makes sense because that I, it's not just the lost revenue and cost, but probably also it affects my rating with these companies, right? It does affect your rating and there are actual additional costs on top of the chargeback. So you're not only refunding revenue, but you're also losing or incurring additional fees. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes that makes sense. But with chargebacks, I presume what is something that because I there's a lot of reasons people can charge back. They're not happy with the service, or they claim that they've never actually bought that service, right? But how? So, and I understand that in the first case, right? Somebody claims they've never actually bought this. Please refund me because I don't know it's a fraudulent charge. But in terms of not being happy with the service. I understand. I, I think I saw that a lot of credit card companies, they do refund if you've never, you, you actually did order this, but you never received an order, for example, on e-commerce. Correct. However, how is that with just not being completely happy? Is is that a legitimate chargeback or do these get pushed back? 
Generally, with a software, you can typically prove that a software has been provided, has been delivered, and has been used. Um, so mm-hmm. that would actually turn over the chargeback. Um, okay. Sometimes you have instances where a customer is dissatisfied, but in general, we have found credit card companies do not always straight across do a blanket approach to approve those chargebacks against the provider of the service or software. So you okay. just- my point is you do stand a chance. It's, it's a okay. little David versus Goliath, but you will stand a <laughs> chance of winning some of these. So it's definitely worth putting in some effort. I would say take a look at when it makes sense to do so. If your your business is only seeing like three chargebacks a month, you might want to respond to them, but maybe you want to wait a little bit before you hire someone to do it, for example. Sure, sure. How does that usually look like? Because I've never, never seen a chargeback. What do they ask of me typically when somebody does a chargeback, how, how, how much work is it to, to actually respond to that? So there's a difference in what the chargeback type is. So if it's a fraudulent mm-hmm. chargeback, often, for example, in that case, proving that you had a three days authentication on that transaction is key because then you can prove that, Hey, this card is not stolen. The user actually authorized the transaction. If it's another transaction in the sense of, hey, I didn't receive the software that I've purchased. Um, I don't know what this is. Then it is our responsibility as a company to reply and show proof of concept that this was purchased, when it was purchased, when it was delivered, and when it was used. So the nature of chargebacks do differ. For example, in the old days, <laughs> back when you had to sign for every single transaction, that actually was your proof that the credit card was used and you were entitled to charge that credit card. So mm-hmm. now you're, we, they are more accepting of electronic and digital um, support and evidence as um, businesses globally have moved towards digitalization of the process. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that insight because I think chargebacks are a really crucial topic for a lot of people. And to really close out on the fraud topic, you did mention that you could sort of get your business in like Visa or MasterCard arrest, right? Like if they decide not to work with you anymore, is that it for forever? And when does that happen typically? Right. So it does happen, especially in, or in particular when your fraud chargebacks are highest. When that mm-hmm. does happen, you should get alerted the first month. It does occur when you're working with indirect providers, so not directly with, with the acquirers, that they notify you a month too late, which is actually a high risk for your company. If you're on this mm-hmm. list for three months, generally it means you're on the watch list. And then you are also mm-hmm. subject to fines from the Visa mm-hmm. and MasterCard companies. Some of the pro- programs are stricter than others. Like if MasterCard, I think initially, and please, I, I don't remember out of the top of my head, it was like sure. $500, whereas like Visa is happy to put $25,000 at some instances on these, these charges. And what happens is once you're in the program, you, until your numbers go back down, you will stay in the program. And no, this will not go on infinitely. At a certain point, the provider can cut you off and say, we can no longer do business with you. Your business provide is too fraudulent for us. And it also depends on the risk appetite of your payment provider. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because obviously there's a lot of independent uh, companies in the transaction. So if it's not Visa that kicks you, but your payment provider, you might still be able to find a different one, I suppose. But if it's actually Visa and or MasterCard, then I guess you're you're kind of doomed. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. We also touched on 
internationalization, right? Where you mentioned, you know, if it's a cross-border transaction, there the charges are more expensive. But another another sort of side to look at this is uh, as SaaS companies, obviously it's easy to internationalize, right? We we provide our software online, and um, anybody in the entire world can access it. And I think this awareness is only coming right now that there's actually some potential compliance with that, right? If, you know, you have people from, I mean, everybody's heard of GDPR by now, I guess, but that's not the only compliance that you have as a SaaS company. What is important to know about charging people in a lot of different countries, whether I'm based in the EU, in the US, somewhere else, and I have customers all over the world. What is important for me to know if I'm accepting money worldwide right now, what should I be aware of? You should be aware of taxes. <laughs> and I, and I think it's, it's super interesting. Um, I was um, having a conversation <laughs> with um, a, a gentleman um, who has been in the SaaS industry um, for quite some time. He has set up about, I think, five to seven different businesses. And he said, I wish that I knew back then what I know today. And what he's found is that often founders do not think about where they're heading in a sense of, hey, this looks like a cool software. I just built this little cool gadget and I'm selling it and I'm just going to you know, sleep and get rich. And in principle, what happens is that we build out this beautiful software. But when it comes to the payment infrastructure or even invoicing or the receipts that are, you know, in the compliance piece and the taxes that all of a sudden also need to be paid. Nobody thinks of this because nobody talks about this until it's, I'm going to say too late until you have your entire company, you know, growing at a massive rate and you're hitting the 200 to 400 FTEs or, or headcount that you're hiring. Then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I have to pay taxes. And like, how are we going to set this up? So I think it's interesting that compliance, just accounting, reporting, forecasting, when it comes to taxes, all of these things have historically been an afterthought. And as the software space is getting more and more regulated, because let's be honest, it's still in such a hyper growth, but governments don't know how to regulate it. They are not sure how to tax it yet. And so that is becoming more and more stringent. Um, like even if we look at, for example, Germany um, recently announcing that they are changing the legislation around subscriptions, software subscriptions that they're requiring for software companies to make it more easily accessible to cancel. So suddenly software that used to be super easy to internationalize and super easy to like roll out globally. Now you have to have these, these GDPR and these subscri software subscription legislation in different countries where you do business. You have to be compliant with who are the sanctioned countries you're not allowed to sell to or from. Like, so all of a sudden there's a whole compliance element that people generally don't think about because software is easy to sell globally. I think that the marketplace is really changing and it's being more regulated. And one of the more complicated pieces is definitely tax because the way that software is taxed, even if we just look at the United States, in every 50 states are different. Some of them tax it, some of them don't. Some of it, for example, we'll call a web-based uh, functionality saying, oh, that's telecommunications. Others will call it software. So every single state in one country already has a different tax model. And that also is the same for the rest of the world. So I, I think rolling out software globally has become more complex and there are more challenges. And I suspect that the global 
legislation will toughen over the coming years. Hiring a perfect team isn't a piece of cake, is it? To find a good candidate, you need to post a job on multiple job boards, review like 100 CVs, conduct at least a dozen initial interviews to make sure there's at least a single specialist you would like to hire. But with Superb Hire by Trust Short, you can forget about all of the hiring headache. Find, meet, and hire skilled and dedicated assistants ready to take over marketing, sales, administrative, customer support, data entry, or other tasks, contribute to your business growth, and help you reach your goals. Superb Hire takes care of the entire recruitment process. You just have to show up for the final interview. Visit SuperbHire.com and book a free, no-commitment call to learn more. It's SuperbHire.com. So to, to put this sort of straight, right, it's not like much changed in what should be taxed, right? But if you're, I don't know, registered in the U.S., then you're probably aware of how that works in the U.S. and you pay your taxes. I mean, we're talking about corporate taxes that you pay where you're registered anyway, but it, we're, we're speaking of more consumer or, or client-related taxes like sales tax in the U.S., Correct. right? So that I kind of get and also the U.S. knows I'm I'm there. And so that's, you know, when they audit my books, they will probably take a look at, you know, did I charge sales tax? So I'm aware of that. But now I'm this US-based company that also sells in Europe, right? I mean, I don't care. People just sign up and they pay and uh, that's that's it. So Europe generally doesn't know I'm doing business in Europe and they also didn't really care about software up until recently. And that's why nobody ever charged any what is it? VAT, right? And that's probably how this is now changing. And also every country in Europe, different VAT rates, exemption models for, you know, we have, and you have your UVAT ID and whatnot. And it's just really complicated and you should be doing these charges. I don't know how high the risk for small SaaS companies to ever, or at least right now, get fined for not doing it. But that's what you said, right? Once you're actually growing and, um, I don't know, your investors will suddenly see that as a huge risk, especially since it, you know, this is not moving forward. This is counting a couple of years back also, right? You might be in a situation where you want to raise funding and uh, you will be a legal risk to your investors because, well, there's a huge potential fine just over your head if anybody ever finds out, I guess, right? That is correct. <laughs> and in some, and, and in most jurisdictions also, I think to your point, if you're a very, if you're a small software company, this is a non-issue because some, in some jurisdictions tax only becomes due above certain thresholds. And so that's then a matter of looking how you position yourself. But I agree with you that generally this is something, not something people think of until further down the line. Uh, which is why there are now many SaaS solutions out there that can help partner with you straight out the gate to get it right so that you don't have to think about it moving forward. And that's also something you help solve, right? At Paddle, as I understand. Yes. Paddle currently is the only end-to-end provider for the full journey. Everything else out there currently is a piecemeal solution. So you can hire someone to do your payments, someone to do your invoicing, someone to do your taxes, someone to do your chargebacks. Paddle is the only end-to-end provider at this moment in the software space. Um, we manage your payments for you, your fraud. We manage your chargeback re- replies. We manage your invoicing of your customers and we pay you out as well as manage your taxes and take full responsibility for that and compliance. 
Yeah, and I find it interesting how you do that. Uh, I guess the term is merchant of record because uh, the other solutions obviously help you understand and analyze what you have to do and then tell you what you need to do in each country and simplify the process potentially. But what is a merchant of record? A merchant of record basically means that we take full responsibility for selling the product. We're basically buying the product from the, the software designer and selling it to their customer. So with that, with us being the merchant of record also states that we assume full responsibility. And this is also why we just do the whole thing for you. We make sure your fraud's under control. We make sure your chargebacks are responded to. We make sure your taxes are filed. And you will, if you, for example, get audited for tax, we would be your business partner to take that on. Mm-hmm. So that's very, it's a very interesting model. So you're basically the reseller that is the consumer facing entity for all of these countries. And that's sort of the one that is actually selling in all these countries. I'm not, I'm only selling to one, which is you essentially, correct. right? That is correct. Okay. Interesting. Well, definitely a lot of responsibility. So, um, well, <laughs> good. Someone's taking that off. <laughs> um, but I guess for internationalization, there's also other factors that make it more successful or less successful. Do you have any insights on, you know, what changes if you provide local currencies or things like that? I think most people also don't really think about that. They just have their dollars and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. I think providing local currency, besides enhancing the overall experience of your customers, it also makes their decision to purchase easier because, for example, if you were to buy something in yen, the first thing you do is you're going to Google the effects rate to try and convert it to your own currency, determine what the price is. And so providing your local currency makes that whole um, decision to buy and clicking pay, uh, that whole journey go faster. So it definitely helps um, with the checkout flow as well as lowering your abandoned cart rates. Um, so that's one of the benefits. The other benefit is as well is if a, a local credit card gets charged in local currency, the chance of chargebacks are reduced and the transaction is less likely to be flagged as a fraudulent or a risk transaction. Mm -hmm. So your decline rate on credit cards would also go down. <clears throat> okay, that makes sense. I do have a question though. Uh, how do most people um, do it with, let's say that my currency is US dollar, and I'm offering a local plan in euros, right? And now we all know that the euro has tanked pretty badly in comparison to the US recently. So how do these usually look like? Do I just present the euro price uh, and, and but say, okay, this is every month is just the current euro dollar conversion rate? Or do would you recommend, or maybe, I don't know, do you have any data on that, whether people actually really prefer to have their stable local currency plan. So it, it, I signed up at 50 euros a, a month and I'm staying at 50 euros a month. If it is a subscription base, I would strongly recommend keeping the value that you're charging flat. I think an interesting example is if you look at like an Apple product, I happen to have like a US account and a Europe account. If I log into my US account, it's $1.99. If I log into my euro account, it's a euro 99. So it's actually the same, but in a different currencies, despite the currency fluctuations. And I think that's more done from this, just the, the, the customer perspective on what makes it easier and faster for them to buy. So generally 
I would say, look at what is a reasonable price and I would present that. There are exceptions to this rule. Like if it's, for example, you are selling into a market like Argentina, where the inflation is about 40% every month, there you probably do want to have the flexibility of adjusting your rates. And if you are having customers sign up for a subscription, you probably do want to lock it down in dollars. Okay, so yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so it depends guess, on the markets. Yeah, it does. But I guess what Apple does is they, they don't necessarily say, okay, today we're doing pricing and it's $1.99 in the US, so we'll do whatever, Euro seventy nine in Europe, and then we're keeping it or we're adjusting it. But I guess they're going into every single market and they're trying to independently understand what's the maximum we can charge here. So it's probably not even a conversion thing, but I guess that's the other benefit. If you know, hey, this country, you know, they're willing to pay much more. So we'll just give them their local currency, but different pricing. That's probably the other benefit of that. You can do the same. Yes. Do you have any other insights at panel when it comes to what helps conversions when it comes to credit cards? You know, there's this old debate of credit card upfront or uh, once you upgrade to a paid plan, or uh, do you have any insights into things like that? I think in general, subscription management for software companies is challenging. And the reason why is because credit cards are not static. So you don't have a credit card that is, you know, it, it, it's valid forever. We all know that. So I think having a strong subscription management in place, whether you build it yourself, if you have the resources to, or whether you outsource this to a payment provider or another company, having a process in place that will validate the credit cards. For example, if you know the credit card expired in 2021, why are you asking your your automation to retry it a hundred times? It's adding additional costs. It's not helping you collect any more money. And it's definitely um, increase, declining your acceptance rate. So you're going to have skewed data overall in your acceptance rate as well. If you have processes like that, that are not fully checking the validity of the credit card before having a subscription run on it. So I think that's something to definitely check for. Um, and also a process that will validate if the card is still active. With the high fraud that is happening on credit cards, often customers may change or cancel their cards. So I think it's useful to upfront check if the credit cards are valid before you keep retrying a hundred times to collect that subscription. So that's definitely something that I've seen um, across many businesses. The first time I do, the first thing I usually do when I walk in, if the acceptance rate is low, I start digging into the subscriptions models. I'm like, how did you build it? How is it running? How often is it retrying? Does it have any like criteria before it retries? Or like, how are we housing this, managing the data or who is managing it for us? And often we find, I found that looking just at how we are charging credit cards through our subscription model has led to an increase of acceptance rate. Once that mm-hmm. is in place, then you can really start diving into different countries um, and looking at like, which are the highest, you know, declines or which, com- which countries have the highest decline and then start looking at, should I get a local acquirer there to increase my acceptance rate? Or is there something else happening that the credit cards are declining in that specific jurisdiction? So I, I think for, for me, that's those are the two first things that I do if the acceptance rate is a topic um, in the companies that I walk in. This is very interesting. Okay, so um, it might even make sense to have 
different to work with different acquirers across different countries because they what why would for example a u.s acquirer have a higher decline rate in a specific country what might be the reason behind that for example 3ds if 3ds oh, okay. yeah, is, right. is, is is a very simple or, or basic example on credit cards and if you switch that on for all countries you immediately get a significantly higher decline Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, of course, because when it, when they don't have it, okay, that makes sense. So, speaking of which, um, let's say that I'm brand new SaaS and I'm currently trying to understand who's who's the best provider to integrate with. Now, obviously, obviously, we're all. That's why I'm smiling. Here, but, I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just a little bit. So, so, people people on audio audio they don't see it, but you're obviously <laughs> smiling a little bit there. But in terms of what are sort of the different criteria that I can look at as objectively as is humanly possible? I guess there's obviously integration effort. There's fees and pricing. What, what different, uh, is it like industry standard or do you see different pricing models or being able to accept other payment methods outside of just credit cards? What's, what's kind of out there? What are the benefits or, or not or features that, that different people provide? Yeah, I think integration effort, um, as we said, like for a payment provider is it's super easy to do. Like if you're a software company, you go on Google, you do a search and you find a ton of payment providers and you can look at which criteria you will prefer. The question to ask is what market are you looking to penetrate or grow in? Like, for example, next to just basic payment providers, you also have, for example, specific payment methods in specific countries. Like in the Netherlands, you would have a payment type called Ideal. So you might use a PayPal. Or like in um, Brazil, you literally have a payment method called Boletos, which is not known to like international markets unless you've operated there. So there are other payment methods that not all payment providers provide. So I think it's important also to identify which markets are you targeting and which mm -hmm. payment provider that I sign up with can offer me the most global experience to be able to scale that market. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. And um, let's say that I'm not a new company. I have, I don't know, I'm, I'm working with uh, a big payment provider, just the, the typical provider, not a more low level company. I have a ton of subscriptions there. Is there any way to move providers or would I just have to say, okay, I'm just, you know, changing up my form and whoever signs up from today is on this new payment provider. Uh, but the old ones kind of have to remain with that. Do you, how, how does that work? Is there something like that? Yes, you can move. Yes, definitely. The initial step would be any new traffic goes to a new payment provider. And the way you would move your historic traffic is collaborating between your old and your new provider and looking at what the requirements are and determining how to switch them over. Sometimes it may require notification of the customer. Um, so mm -hmm. it's not that easy. And I think, I'm not saying it cannot be done. It can be done. It is done every day because people are not generally, they, they won't be, they won't settle for less in terms of service and experience. And I think paying mm -hmm. providers for a good time have owned a lot of the space, but now software companies are rightfully so becoming more demanding of service. So if you are unhappy with your service, there's definitely a way to switch. My strongest recommendation is choose the right partner straight up the gate. 
And that is where um, I'm not going to be super biased, <laughs> but a little bit. <laughs> I, 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 that's where I think Paddle for me has been so interesting because I have dealt with payment providers in every single company that I've worked in and they provide that one thing. And I think as SaaS companies, there's the requirements for us in the SaaS space has become more, it has become bigger than just getting payments in. So we do have a layered approach of needing more than just that one thing. That's right. Yeah. And you said some might require a notification of the customer, but that's just notification or is it actual like approval or acceptance? Because that'd probably be a conversion killer. It depends on how and where you're converting to. I'll give you an example. If you were a UK company and you want to get away from the interchange fees, the way to do that mm -hmm. would be to set up another location or another entity in a European-based company and funnel your traffic through there instead. To do mm -hmm. that, you might have to update your contracts to inform your customers mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. that legal jurisdiction change. Mm -hmm. If you're changing from same, same country to same country, it might be okay. You might not have to notify them. You might still want to do that. So that when they see a different charge running on subscriptions, they know where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because yeah, that makes sense. Your, if not, you're at risk of getting declines and chargebacks because it's an unidentified change. So being, right. okay. Okay. being proactive on your communication is definitely encouraged. So that would reduce your, it would, I think it would enhance the trust and, and the people put in your company as well as reduce their declines. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And now that I'm thinking of it, this is probably the same when you sell or acquire a SaaS business, right? You're, I guess you're not normally taking over somebody else's payments account, right? That is tied also compliance wise to that company. So when you're doing an asset deal, this is where, where this becomes relevant because when you do you a actually, share deal, you actually yeah. do get, you do get the accounts with the company. Um, with, the, but, but with a shared, uh, with an asset deal, I guess, no. It, yeah. It depends what you, how you set the deal up, but as an M&A, because we've done a couple of acquisitions, you acquire the company and you gain full access to all of your payments provider accounts, as well as their bank accounts. That right, is generally yes. how you bring the two together. However, to your point, at some point, if you're planning to fully integrate, Yes, you have to inform the customers mm -hmm. of the contract change and the payment change. And that is when mm -hmm. you're moving all of your customers over into one payment provider, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I do think that it would be difficult for an asset deal because that's where you really have to switch the entity that's charging people that might be in a different country also, right? So this is probably getting even more complicated. Okay, that's interesting. So probably easier and better to do share deals in this case. Okay, but I think that's also something that, that not a lot of people think of. Okay, thank you so much for these insights. I would love to hear now just a little bit about now the fully biased uh, uh, <laughs> opinion on why you think Paddle is, is the best uh, payment provider for SaaS out there. Yeah, as, as I shared before, Paddle is the only one that doesn't piecemeal. And I think it's very easy when you're straight out the gate to say, hey, I only need a payment provider. Reality is at some point you will have to follow your taxes. You will have to respond to chargebacks. You will have to upgrade your invoicing to remain compliant in the tax jurisdictions that you're playing with. Even in the U.S. in all 50 states, it's challenging to keep up. And Paddle is the only company that caters to all of it in one go so that you don't have to think about it. 
And when we were founded, that was exactly the point. It was to be able to enable and empower software creators to do, to build what they've built and to be, to be the best at doing that and to leave all of the administration and compliance and tax headaches to somebody else and not let that be a bottleneck. So that's where um, my humble opinion is that Paddle would be the best partner straight out the gate, uh, which is actually also for me, one of the key reasons why I moved and I wanted to be a part of the Paddle journey because I thought it was, it's, sol- it's really solving a problem in the tech space. Um, so I'm very excited to be a part of the team and building out the tooling to make sure that we're automating um, the pieces that we can and to enable software creators to really roll out globally to everybody in every market around the world. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and, of course, Paddle? I think LinkedIn is a space that I'm most active on at the moment. And Paddle, definitely, we have our own website. We're also super active. Um, our CEO is very active on Twitter as well. Um, so we're pretty much everywhere. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been very, very insightful. Some of these have been very deep sort of payment topics. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I think a lot of people will appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Victor. This show is brought to you by TrustShoring, your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from Eastern Europe. We recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to TrustShoring.com.